0: Hello, I'm Frank Dillon and welcome to the inaugural Decision Podcast. We're delighted to be joined today by Whitney Johnson, executive coach, author and LinkedIn influencer. Whitney's latest book, Build an A-Team, aims to show organisations how to maximise the performance of their people at every stage of their career journey. Whitney, you're very welcome to Dublin and congratulations on producing another very insightful volume.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: The backdrop to this book is the huge level of disengagement in the workforce. We've one global survey even suggesting that only 15% of employees are engaged. Why is this increasingly the case, do you think?
1: isn't that amazing? Only 15%? You know, I think it's it's the residual of the industrial age where we had these assembly lines and you would say, okay, assembly line, let's put this piece onto the line and we'll manufacture this car and we'll be done. And I think that it's a relic of that of people are cogs, just like a part is a cog. And so when we go to work, we feel like a cog in the machine when the reality is, is that we are all learning machines. Like we are wired to not know how to do something, figure out how to do it, master it and start all over again. We're 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 meant to be learning machines. And so we ourselves are supposed to be the machine, but we're trying to be plugged into this thing where we're inanimate, we're an object. And so I think people go to work and they're like, this, this makes me feel dead inside. I can't do this. I'm, I'm very unhappy. And so I think that's why the disengagement is so hard.
0: So to have an engaged organization, then the opportunity to learn and grow are clearly vital elements.
1: Yeah, we have to be able to learn. I mean, if you think about it, it honors that biology of change. You have spring and then you have summer and then you have fall and you have winter and you start all over again. And it's the same for us as individuals.
0: Getting to the core of your, your book, Whitney, you suggest that in a, a typical organizational structure, there's a three-stage S-curve with a very sweet spot in the middle. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: One of the big discoveries I had when I was um, working on Wall Street and then co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School is that this whole theory of disruption that we were applying to products actually also applies to people. And as I did even more work around that, I had this Bigger aha in some respects is that this S curve that was popularized by EM Rogers that we were using to help us figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted actually also applies to people. And so let me just give you a quick overview of what that looks like. And so for a product or a service, the S curve, you've got the bottom of the S. And I want everybody who's listening to picture that. There's this little line at the bottom, and you first initiate or introduce a product, and growth is really, really slow, and then you reach this tipping point or the knee of the curve. And that's typically 10 to 15. 15% 15% market penetration, and you go up hyper growth, and then at 90% or saturation and growth tapers off. Well, that's for a product or service. The aha for me was that you could apply it to people. So whenever you start a new job, you start a new role, you're at the bottom of that S, growth is going to be really slow, and it can feel like a complete slog. And what's good about that, or good to know that is that it helps you not get quite so discouraged, because you're like, of course, it's supposed to be slow. This is I'm at the bottom of the S time is passing and nothing is happening. Then what would happen is that you move into the sweet spot of the curve once you've done some work. And this is the exciting part because you're feeling increasingly competent with that comes confidence and its engagement as well. Then you get to the top of that S. So now you're at the flat portion. On the one hand, you're like, this is easy. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm like a cog in the wheel. And that's exactly the problem because it is easy. You know what you're doing. You start to get bored and your brain is no longer giving you these feel-good chemicals that say, this is fun, I'm learning. And so you get bored. And what you need to do once you get there is you need to jump to the bottom of a new learning curve. And so you learn, and then you leap, and then you repeat that all over again. And that's really the basis of the book. And it comes from my study of disruptive innovation and trying to think, how does this apply not only to products and services, but how does it apply to us as individuals?
0: Speaking about disruptive innovation, you've done a lot of work, of course, with Clay Christensen, who has a great reputation in this in this area, and you've observed the value that that disruptive innovation can bring to organisations. Is the message here that, that personal complacency is also a danger for, for individuals as well as for firms, so that we need to disrupt ourselves or to be disrupted by our managers.
1: You know what's interesting is if you if you think about the fact that um, it, when you're at the high end of a learning curve, what has happened? You get bored, right? Well, if you get bored at the high end of a learning curve, you can leave your organization because you're like, I'm not learning anymore, I'm not having fun, I've got to go do something else because I feel like I'm dying here. Or you get complacent and you settle. And if you think about that as a complacent person, you're you're not innovating you're just dialing it in and so if you've got all these people who are at the top of their learning curve just dialing it in complacent they are not innovating and bored and complacent people they don't innovate they get disrupted and so you your organization can get disrupted but in fact you can know if your organization is at risk of being disrupted by just taking the pulse of your workforce because if you have too many people at the high end you're in a little bit of trouble
0: Whitney for that to work being able to take risks and presumably not to be punished if those risks don't work out. That's important, yes?
1: Absolutely. It's it's very important and it's very hard. And part of the reason it's hard is that there's oftentimes so much, it feels like there's so much on the line. And, and we also don't generally deal with failure very well because in our society, I think we tend to have this idea of, you know, if you get an A on a test, then you're smart and you're successful. And if you get a B on your test, you're dumb and you're not worth much. So like, worthwhile, worthless. And so every time we do something and it doesn't quite work, if we're in an environment where it's all on the line, and if you don't do it perfectly, not only did you make a mistake, but you are worthless, then those are pretty high stakes. And so one of the things that we need to do around that is, number one, is be aware of, am am I willing to fail? Am I Am I feeling the sense of identity around this failure and therefore not willing to fail? And the second thing we can do as a manager is say to ourselves, okay, how do I make it safe for people to fail? It doesn't have to be yes or no. It can be We're going to try this. We're going to see what happens. And it might not work, but it's the right thing to do in terms of developing our people. So let's just see what happens. And when you frame it like that, it takes a lot of the potential shame out of the equation because it's not about your identity. It's just about a test you're running. I love this quote from Zig Ziglar. He said, failure is an event, not a person. And I think that's a really great way of encapsulating it.
0: You look at the issue of recruitment in the book, and you say that hiring an Ivy League educated MBA who has done the exact job you need doing for the past three years might feel safe, but it's actually a form of competitive risk. Explain.
1: There are a couple of things here. Number one, if the person knows how to do the job that you want them to do, and they're very, very competent, then you're probably, number one, you don't even know if you can get them because... If they take this job, they're probably not going to be learning. So that's number one problem. Number two problem is is if you can get them, they're probably going to be really expensive because there's a lot of other people that want to hire them. Number two problem. Number three problem, and this is really the biggest one, is because they're going to get bored so quickly, the shelf life for that employee is really, really short. And so even though it seems like, this is great, I just got this Ivy League educated MBA that knows exactly how to do the job because the shelf life is so short, the actual economic cost of hiring that person is very, very high.
0: And following on from that, is it fair to say that organizations are typically too conservative in the type of field that we we employ? Should we be looking more left field with some of our recruits?
1: Absolutely. Um, What makes it difficult, and again, I think this goes back to what we were saying just a minute ago of being able to really frame out the risk is because if if I hire someone who has a degree from Harvard, um, they've got an MBA, and they don't do well then i can be like well he came from the best school So it's not my fault that they didn't do well. Whereas if I hire someone who doesn't have maybe even an MBA, um, and if they do have an MBA, it's from a a second or third tier school, if they don't work out, it's not their fault, it's my fault. And so again, we've got this risk. The thing is is that this goes back to the framing. If you say to them, all right, we want to hire people for potential, not for proficiency. We want to hire people who are hungry with something to prove. Yes, you've got to credentialize them and make sure that they can do the job, but those people are going to be so hungry and not it's not just a paycheck. It's like, I want this job. I want to succeed. Then, again, the economic cost starts to, starts to get much, much lower. And over time, you're going to have people who are much more engaged and therefore they're happier, but the business benefits as well.
0: Okay, following off on that, any more advice in terms of the key things that we need to do to support our new hires in those initial weeks and months when when they're just coming in and and we want to move them up the value chain.
1: So I think the first thing to be aware of is that they because they are at the low end of the learning curve, they don't quite know what they're doing. And so there's going to be a lot of time that's going to pass and it's going to feel like "Mm, they're not making much progress. And so they're going to be getting discouraged. And you also might be getting impatient, like, maybe I shouldn't have hired this person, they don't really know what they're doing. So that's one thing to be aware of is help them not get discouraged, you not be impatient. But in order for them to be successful from there, you want to make sure that they understand what the why is of the organization. Like, why are you doing the work that you're doing why is the team doing the work it's doing and then also find out what's their why like why did that person hire you as their boss like they came to work for you and not anywhere else for a reason what are they hoping to get out of that? Now, there's a risk in doing that because what they're effectively doing is they're showing you their hopes and dreams, and that gives you a lot of power, and you have to treat that with tremendous respect. But if you know what they're trying to get out of this, this job, it makes it a lot easier for you to really manage them. And then the, the, the final thing I would say on that is to really have a conversation with them of, okay, you're on a learning curve, you're at the low end. You're gonna be here about four years, overall and then if you do a really good job you're going to get to the top and then we're going to start all over again. This is what the process looks like and in the next week or so I'm going to give you these really short term assignments. I'm going to give you assignments of people you need to meet so you've got these really short term tightly scoped projects that are going to give you feedback and help you figure out how you're doing. Because on your first couple of weeks, every single day, you're going to be like, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? I'm going to give you projects that are going to allow you to get that feedback that's going to give you information. and will be like, OK, I know I'm feeling a little discouraged, but I had a good day because I know a little bit more today than I did yesterday.
0: That's great if it all happens. But what, in your experience, are the biggest stumbling blocks to creating an A team? And how do we overcome those?
1: Yeah, so uh, there are a lot of stumbling blocks. I think one of them is just not recognizing what we've been talking about is that everybody's on a learning curve, including you, the person who's hiring. And if we don't understand that, that's a big stumbling block. I think a stumbling block for people at the low end of the curve is to, number one, not recognize that they're gonna be slow initially. And number two, when they're at the low end of the curve is to not value their inexperience. So we tend to be like, okay, you come in and you've got all these ideas of like, we could do this differently, or why do you do it like this? And instead of being like, you're right, why do we do it like this? You get annoyed or you actually feel threatened because they're like, why do you do it like this? And so that's a big stumbling block because you don't want anybody who says we could do things differently. That's the low end of the curve. I think a stumbling block for people who are in the sweet spot of their learning is that they start to do things really well. They start to become a high performer. And instead of pushing them and saying, I'm going to give you more to do, we're like, they're fine. I'll leave them be. That's a stumbling block. And we don't appreciate them. We don't say to them, you know what, you're really doing a terrific job. Thank you so they feel valued. And then at the high end of the curve, I think the stumbling block is we just try to leave them there way too long um, and and not give them an opportunity to jump to a curve and do something new. And and I think the other sort of bigger piece of this is just recognizing is that you need people at different points along the curve. You need people at the low end, the sweet spot, and the high end. And we tend to try to have them all at one place on the curve, all at behind. And I think that's a big stumbling block because if you don't have them along the curve, you're not going to get innovation, you're not going to lower your we're about to be disrupted score.
0: You warn of the danger of the wrong type of praise for your reports, and you have an expression in in the book, which I particularly liked, where you said, disruptive innovation thrives in an environment of gratitude rather than one of entitlement. Tell us more.
1: Every single person on your team is desperately wants praise. We all desperately want to praise. And yet what's interesting as a manager is we tend to be really reluctant to give them that praise. And we think, well, why do we do that? I think there are a couple of reasons why we're reluctant to give praise. I think one of them is we worry that if we tell people they're going to do a good job, they're going to get entitled like, oh, well, you think I'm doing a good job? Pay me more money. Give me a promotion. So that's, I think, one concern. Another reason I think sometimes we aren't willing to give praise and to be grateful for the work that people are doing is Gretchen Rubin. She wrote The Happiness Project, did some research, and she found out that we tend to um, think that people who criticize are smart and people who give praise are dumb and so I don't want to tell you a good job that you did a good job because it makes me it puts me in a one down position and so we're reluctant to hand that out as whereas what she says is it really takes a tremendous amount of social courage to be and humility to say you know thank you you did a really good job at this and so if we're willing to be humble enough, if we're willing to be grateful, then what happens is the person who's climbing the curve and remember they're on that steep part they their low end and it's hard. If we're willing to be grateful for the work that they're doing, they're going to feel they're going to feel energized. They're going to feel like I can do this. Even though it's hard, I can do this. And so that gratitude on the part of you as a manager, that willingness to dispense praise, even though sometimes you don't want to for a variety of reasons, really doesn't make a difference in terms of people being able to innovate and to climb their learning curve.
0: We know that what gets measured gets done. And one of the suggestions that you have is to include talent management in senior managers' performance reviews. Have you seen that working in practice?
1: Yeah, so um, when I was writing the book Build an A Team, I interviewed a woman named Joe Taylor at a company called Talk. Talk. Well, she used to be at a company called Talk Talk Telecom, and one of the things we know is that if you um, if people are engaged, operating margins go up, and if they're disengaged, operating margins go down. And so, but a lot of companies still don't have any metrics at all that measures any kinds of engagement. Well, Talk Talk Telecom did this, and so what they what they instituted is they said, "All right, let's make sure that when we Um, Do performance reviews at the end of a year. Part of the 360 is. Are they developing talent? And if people are developing talent, then it's part of their bonus. It's kind of a simple thing, and yet we so often don't do it. And so if we measure it, then it will start to matter. And if we really believe that talent development, I mean, we say it all the time, talent, 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 our people are people so important, but the metric would suggest complete something completely different. Even introducing a couple of metrics to start to measure, are people developing talent and rewarding them for doing that? It will start to shift.
0: Finally, let's have a look at the top of the S-curve, those who are masters of their roles but who have reached a plateau. They need to be stretched, but how do we best do that? And is there a point sometimes where we have to accept that they may need to go elsewhere to pursue their dreams?
1: Absolutely. Sometimes they do. Sometimes we do. We get to the top of a learning curve and there really is nowhere else for us to go. And so let's talk about that first. Then we can talk about some things for other folks. So once you're at the top of the curve, I think you want to have a conversation with the person. And we oftentimes we don't have that conversation. Sometimes you'll find is I sit down and I talk to you, Frank, and I say, you know, you're at the top of your curve and you know it and I know it. And so what do you want to do? what do you want to do? What what do we do here? And so you, sometimes people are going to say, you know, I am. And I've been really, I kind of want to do something new. And then you can figure out how to facilitate that. I think one of the, the things that you can do as a manager, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to the person who works for you to your company to the world generally is to be willing to when a person is ready to jump to a new curve make that possible for them. Ideally it's on your team, ideally it's inside of your company but if not then go to a trading partner to a client. That's how you're going to build these vast networks of A-teams over your career. So that's one potential option another is is that if they're at the top of the curve um, you again you've got to frame the conversation because if you're they're at the top and you want them to jump to the bottom of a new curve they might be like they're trying to get rid of me they don't want me on their team anymore if you frame it as you are so capable and you've got all this innovative capacity that is lying dormant we have to unleash it we need to have you be a beginner again we need you to jump to a new curve you're framing that differently then they start to be like huh That's interesting. Um, Not too long ago, I was one of my clients actually, CEO of an organization. He had a fellow who's on his team. He's been the chief marketing officer for 17 years. Done a terrific job. And it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And so they had a conversation. They could have put him out to pasture. He's in his early 60s. They could have just been like, thanks, but no thanks. But they're like, no, he's been a great employee. They found him a new opportunity. Inside the organization, it's very entrepreneurial. He has to start over. And so now the sunset job for his career, the legacy is going to be him doing something really entrepreneurial at the low end of the curve. That to me is a perfect outcome. Another option is just to give a person, okay, you're here. Let's give you another stretch assignment so we really push you hard. And so you can jump to a new curve inside the organization. It can be outside the organization or it can be just this really big stretch assignment internally. And then the fourth option is you're at the top of the curve you're a master in historically masters took on apprentices One of the best things you can do at this point and for someone who's later in their career is take on apprentices and that's jumping to its own kind of curve. So there are a lot of options. The up is not the only way up. And I think there are different ways for you to jump to a new learning curve, provided that you frame it as I'm not putting you out to pasture. I'm figuring out how to deploy you so that you are happy, so that you are learning, so that the organization benefits as well.
0: Whitney, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today.